Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and we are going to talk about a topic we haven't talked about in quite a while, which is the death penalty. And with me to talk about the death penalty is Hannah Cox, who is the Senior National Manager of Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. Hannah was previously Director of Outreach at the Beacon Center of Tennessee, a free market think tank. Prior to that, she was a Director of Development for the Tennessee Firearms Association and a policy advocate for the National Alliance of Mental Illness. Hannah, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. So the death penalty is something that I have learned over the past couple of years, and I don't do a lot of research on it, but when I do look up, you know, statistics and information and sort of notice the way people talk about it, especially the way Christians talk about it, a lot of people think they know what the right position is. And then there's also a lot of misinformation about what they think happens with the death penalty, whether it's about the procedure or about the numbers or about the outcomes of, you know, the crime statistics and so forth. So there's just a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding about it. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. But I think probably the the best place to start is sort of like, could you give us some of the the data on the death penalty in the United States, which I think is probably what we're talking about here, in the United States? And we'll just start from there. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and you're right. We are talking almost singularly about the United States because most other countries don't have the death penalty anymore. We're the only Western country that still has it. Um, the other company that we keep in countries carrying out executions are the likes of like Iran, China, Iraq, Saudi Arabia. So we're in some weird company on that. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of misconceptions about the death penalty. I used to hold them. I was a very staunch supporter of the death penalty for most of my life. I'm a Southern Baptist minister's daughter. I was taught that this was biblical, that we needed it, that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that it was something families wanted. I think I thought I would want it if I were the family member of a victim. I thought it saved money. I thought it deterred crime. I thought the reason that it wasn't more of a deterrent was because it took too long to carry out. Everything I thought about it was wrong. But I was, you know, a middle-class white girl who'd never been around the justice system and probably would never have encountered these issues were it not for a passion on mental health care. I Mm -hmm. really care a lot about mental health issues and feel like free market supporters need to do more to come up solutions for that instead of kind of giving that issue to the left and just depending on government to solve it, which I don't think they're capable of doing. Mm -hmm. So it was through that work that I actually first got involved with the justice system because there's so much overlap between our prison population and our mental health populations in this country. And what I quickly discovered about the death penalty was what I kind of already knew to be true about government, but for some reason was just not including the Justice (laughs) Department in, which is that the government is highly incompetent. They get it wrong all the time. You know, it's not in any way an outlier to have a wrongful conviction in the system, much less in a death penalty system. Uh, We've actually had one person exonerated for every nine executions in this country. Um, When I say exonerated, I think a lot of people don't know what exonerated means. Um, You can be wrongfully convicted and not exonerated. You could be 
executed before it's too late. You could take an Alford plea and get out, but not be fully cleared. You could have your trial reversed. It could be thrown out by the courts. A lot of things could happen when you're wrongfully convicted that could result in you either getting out or not getting out. But to be exonerated is a pretty high burden for people to reach. You really have to have like the ability to show that someone else did it, DNA evidence involved, something that really would um, really ultimately clear the person's name. So one person exonerated for every nine executions is a startling number. There's been hundreds of others who've been wrongfully convicted from death row, but Mm -hmm. that in and of itself is terrifying to me. And that, you know, right there was pretty much enough for me to say, hang on, I don't know if I can support this. You know, no matter what you think about it in theory, no matter what you think about it biblically or constitutionally, if we're getting it wrong that often, that's insane to say the government should be able to continue to carry this out. Um, We wouldn't say that in almost any other facet of government, you know, if we were getting it wrong and people were wrongfully dying one out of every nine tries at something, we would obviously put a stop to that. If you look at the links we're going for COVID to try to prevent deaths, pretty intense. You know, we're really doing some significant things to try to save lives. And to think that we would not have that same approach to people in the justice system is a huge contradiction. So that's one big, big issue. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting that you point out that you didn't sort of put it together that the Justice Department or the justice system itself was not smoothly running the way you thought other parts of the government were. And I think a lot of conservatives sort of have that mindset uh, and I certainly did, and and maybe even still have that bias that, oh, the justice system runs fairly smoothly with a few bumps here and there, and, you know, the law is the law, and it's applied equally, and blah, 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 and yeah, but the rest of the government, they're just a bunch of, in, you know, incompetent <laughs> incompoops. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, you're right. That's that's a really that's a really important point. Does I'm sure you try to make that to people who, like, acknowledge the government is inefficient, ineffective, and then they don't apply that knowledge to this part of things. Right. That's a huge like thorn in my side in this country is you have so many mm. people that say they support limited government for very good reason. Government is prone to corruption and error and inefficiency. And even when it's trying to do something right, often creates more problems than it fixes. And my problem is that when I say I believe in limited government, I actually mean it. And what I've discovered is that a whole lot of people don't. <laughs> they really just mean it in certain areas that they don't like. And they're very fine with big government and areas that they do like. And so it's it's a huge hypocritical stance that a lot of people, I think, don't recognize in themselves. And I wish they did. But certainly the Justice Department yeah. is one. You know, when we, I think it's funny when people say, like, you'll never take away my Second Amendment. And then, you know, have these, like, like police flags. It's like, who, who do you think would be coming to take your gun? It would be the police ultimately. Like that is the government. You know that, right? Um, yeah. So yeah. They'll be yeah, the just, ones tasked with doing that. Yeah. Yeah. There's just a bit of a disjointed stance there. So that's definitely something we point out to people, you know, it doesn't get more big government than allowing the government to kill people. And if you truly do believe in limited government for the reasons I said, it shouldn't surprise you that the justice system also is corrupt and full of error and prone to inefficiency and creates more problems even when it intends to fix something else. Yeah. And so that's, you know, that's a huge argument on our side, I think. Secondarily, the flaws or the misinformation that really kind of got my attention revolved around the lack of a deterrent effect. And really, that takes a bit more in-depth research and understanding to kind of get to the bottom of it. But the reason that the death penalty is not a deterrent, and we know undoubtedly that it is not, there is absolutely nothing to indicate that it is. We see crime stats stay level or even reduce in areas and states that get rid of it, whereas states that continue to use it, which is very few, by the way, have higher rates of violent crime and often see upticks in their violent Mm -hmm. crime rates. 
The thing is, is that most people, when they are committing an act of violence, are operating in one of three mentalities. Either they are acting in a state of mental instability, whether that be through a mental illness, psychosis, an addiction, they're on drugs, or they have some other kind of intellectual disability. They're acting in a crime of passion, so they're acting in the heat of the moment. They're not thinking about the consequences Mm -hmm. um, when they're acting. Or they are methodically planning out what they're going to do and very much anticipate they will get away with it. And so the death penalty is not a deterrent for anybody in any of those three circumstances. And for the last one, you know, thinking they're going to get away with it, the the odds are in their favor. We only solve about 60% of homicides on average across this country. Uh, Many, many, many counties solve far fewer than that percentage every year. And so um, that that actually would be the bigger deterrent to crime would be the assurance that people would be apprehended and held accountable. We don't have that. And I would actually blame the death penalty for that in part because the death penalty is so expensive. It's the most expensive part of our criminal justice system. It's not expensive because it takes too long. It's expensive because the trial is so complicated and comprehensive and lengthy. It requires so much human capital labor. It, you know, it's more hours worked by judges and prosecutors and defense attorneys and lab techs who often work for the prosecutor and for witnesses who are often paid to come in and give testimony and on and on and on and on. That's a, that's a huge list. And this is the one of the things, we're kind of jumping in the weeds already, but this is one of those things where I was baffled by why it costs more. And in my mind, it was that it costs more because you had to keep the the person imprisoned on death row for much longer to like sort of bear out whether or not he was le- he or she were, were legitimately you know guilty and so forth and so that just costs more like people think I mean if you just think simple calculus let's imprison him for the rest of his life or let's kill him mm-hmm. right or let's execute him with the death penalty you'd think oh well the death penalty is way cheaper like we don't have to prison and we, you know. Right. <laughs> There's no housing cost after you're gone. And so what is different? You mentioned all those things that, that had to do with the trial. And honestly, I wasn't aware of it. So what makes a trial different when the death penalty is, per- is it because they pursue the death penalty or is it because there are jurisdictions that permit it? Like what goes on there that makes it more expensive? It's because they pursue it. And that's a really great question because I think that is a very common perception, which it doesn't actually make sense if you if you step back from it and think about it. The death penalty costs at least 10 times more than the next most expensive punishment, which would be life in prison without parole. So that's somebody who- 10 times. 10 times more, yeah, per case. Oh my gosh. And so if you think about that, like nobody serves a longer sentence than someone who is serving life in prison without parole. That is someone who is never eligible for early release or anything. The only way those people are getting out is if they're proven to be wrongfully convicted of a governor or president offers clemency. Right. So, yeah, so it's 10 times more. So when you really step back, you have to kind of look at it and say, OK, like, well, what's driving the cost of it then if it's clearly not the length of time between uh, conviction and execution? And it goes back to the trial. So 70% of the costs come from the trial. And that means that taxpayers are incurring those costs even when the jury says no. From the minute that they start to consider a death sentence, even we've even seen studies that show even if they're just using it as a plea bargain method, the minute that they start to put that on the table, the costs start to tick up. There's a lot that goes into that. So first and foremost, if you're going to have a capital trial, it involves more attorneys. You have more attorneys on both sides. Most people who get the death penalty are are poor people. You don't typically find middle income to wealthier people on death row in this country. So almost unilaterally, they are relying on public defenders. 
You have to have additional certification. Does the law require, so I'm going to interrupt you a sec. Does the law require more lawyers or is that just the natural state? Like people want to go for a death penalty. The, the prosecutors want to go for death penalty. So they, they lawyer up and, you know, beef up their, their case. Yeah, no, it's a requirement. Okay. And that's because these, you know, that I think there's been a lot of things put into place, which there should be because they're trying to ensure we give this person a fair trial and that we get it right if we're going to kill somebody. We know that doesn't work in spite of all of our best efforts. But, you know, to the credit of people who have been trying to be intentional about this, I think they've put in a lot of safeguards that they thought would make it operate in such a manner. And we can get into that, too. Starting in the late 1970s, you know, when the death penalty was brought back, it had been banned by the U.S. Supreme Court for a number of years. When states started trying to bring it back, they put in all of these safeguards and parameters to try to make sure that it wasn't racially biased, as it overtly had been, that it wasn't arbitrary in nature, as it overtly had been, and that we were only convicting people who were truly innocent beyond the shadow of a doubt. And so you see a lot of these things that were put into place to try to meet those goals that have failed, but they're still in place and they do make it far more expensive as well. Yeah. A death penalty trial also takes place in two parts. So most trials, you would just have a one phase. The two phases in a death penalty trial where you have a guilt and innocence phase and then have a sentencing phase. So it's just a longer process. Mm. There, it does require more attorneys. Those attorneys have to be death penalty certified. So it's an additional um, step in uh, not, not just any attorney can come in and be a death penalty attorney. What does it mean to be death penalty certified? That's a that's very strange to me. And I can understand the logic and behind all of the extra measures. But um, yeah, what does is, what is, um, death penalty certified mean? Well, it would depend on the state. And I couldn't probably tell you the ins and outs because I'm not an attorney. I haven't been through those certification processes. But essentially to make sure that the person who is representing the defendant is well-versed in the ins and outs of carrying out a capital trial because they are much more complicated. There's a lot of Mm. different um, deadlines and barriers and just like hoops to jump through. You know, it's just all regulation, basically. But um, you would have to go through an additional certification process in order to be able to participate as, as an attorney. And I think that's why they have two is I think you can't, they don't ever want somebody to be a first time death penalty attorney. And so you have to mm-hmm. always be with someone who has done a death penalty case before. Um, I think that that's where that stems from. I got, you, I got But you. yeah, so it's, it's just a very expensive process. It is a longer process. You typically have more evidence, you have more witnesses, you have more testing, all of that's paid for. And I don't think often people know, like, I didn't know that people who got up to give testimony were often paid on behalf of the state to give their testimony, which I think is a terrible mm-hmm. incentive to get the truth. <laughs> um, uh, you have the labs that are often paid based off of conviction rates through the prosecutor's office. And so we've seen a ton of, of issues with DNA evidence and, and wrongful convictions and misapplication yep, of forensic yep. science um, and people, lab techs who've gone to jail for lying on the stand, manipulated data. You know, there's been a lot of issues. I think 45% of wrongful convictions have had some kind of misapplication of DNA evidence issue. And, and also, you know, it's not that common. We still have DNA evidence in about 10% or less of cases. But when we do have it, it's not nearly as infallible as people think. So all that adds up at the end of the day and makes it at least 10 times more. About It's about a million dollars in excess per case, depending on the state. But yeah, it's extraordinarily expensive. And as mentioned, it's not a deterrent. And so what is that? That's an opportunity cost. Yeah. That's money that we're not spending to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars a year per state on solving more crimes, on programs that could work to prevent crime. Well, I mean, and also think about the costs that it takes to, like we mentioned, the extra certifications, the extra, like, (laughs) there's just like, you know, the costs that aren't even borne on the taxpayer, but the people that are participating that they don't have to do, right? It's sort of like if if accountants didn't have to help file taxes, they'd be doing more productive things. Exactly. Um, 
you know, they didn't have to do this. So I want to know, I don't know if you may not have all these at your fingertips, but if you have to do ballpark uh, figures, that's fine. Not every state in the union does have the death penalty on the books. It seems to be concentrated. The last I remember looking, and we did an episode like, gosh, like 180 episodes ago or so on this podcast, we had our last death penalty conversation. And it seems to be that the death penalty is carried out in like a handful of counties around the country. Is that still the case? Like what's the state of the death penalty from the federal level and then just various states? Yeah, that's definitely the case. We're seeing a tremendous downward trajectory in recent years on usage of the death penalty across the board. You can look at, you know, polls that show that people who support it are dwindling in numbers quite quickly. But more importantly, I think when you look at what's happening in the courtrooms and in the legislatures across this country, it becomes rapidly apparent that people are turning against the death penalty in mass. Um, as I mentioned, you know, taxpayers incur the cost whether or not a jury votes yes or no. We see that since 2000, new death sentences have collapsed about 60% during that time period. And that has to do with the implementation of most states adding life in prison without parole statutes, which they actually didn't mostly have until that time period. And so oftentimes you would see juries vote for death sentences before that era because they were afraid someone that they thought would be ongoingly violent might get out. Now that they have an option where they know that won't be the case, they tend to pick that over a death sentence. So we don't have nearly the numbers being added to our death rows. We have a death row population that's um, aging. The leading cause of death on death row is not execution. It's actually natural causes followed by suicide and then execution. And so uh, we kind of see a lot of people who got these death sentences in the 1970s and 1980s are still there. And we're not really adding to those numbers Mm -hmm. at any large number. We also have decreased the number of states who have it. So We've actually repealed the death penalty in two states in under two years, New Hampshire and Colorado most recently. Uh, We're down to 22 states that have repealed it legislatively, three others that have moratoriums on executions in place, and so really 25 states that have active death penalty systems. Mm -hmm. Um, Of those, though, over a third of them haven't carried out an execution in a decade or more. So you're really down to like under 20 states that have had an execution in the past decade. And within that, you're down to only 10 states or fewer that have really been active year in and year out. Um, For the past six years, the country has been under 30 executions a year. And I think... That sounds really low. Really low. I mean, at the height of it, you know, the 1990s. Oh, 90s, okay. 90s was actually the height of it in the modern era. So, you know, there was the break in the 1970s where it was banned. Before that, there were really high amount, hundreds. Um, But after reinstatement, it never really increased to those levels again. And 1990s was the height of the modern era. Mm -hmm. And I would say they were, you know, close to 200 or so. Okay. 150 to 200 a year. So yeah, it's it's decreased greatly. And really just seven or eight states. So 31, huh? Under 30 for the past six years. So I think last year was like 25. Okay. Yeah. And I think last year it was like 40% of them came from Texas alone. I think the year before it was 50% came from Texas alone. So it's like, it's mostly Texas doing this. (laughs) Like, honestly, like most other states are like, this is stupid. This is a huge waste of money. We kill innocent (laughs) people. We have to pay out huge settlements to people who we wrongfully convict. This prevents us from solving more crimes. And like most people don't pursue the death penalty anymore. Most prosecutors don't pursue the death penalty. We see that the majority of these cases come from only 2% of the nation's counties. Most prosecutors have recognized 
recognize that this is foolish and don't do it. You have a couple really aggressive DAs who are trying to build their name recognition, climb the political ladder, who tend to rely very heavily on the name recognition yeah. these cases get them. And that's uh, and that's okay. why it's so arbitrary because you could look at a state, you know, there's this notion that it's the worst of the worst who get the death penalty when the heinousness of the crime has nothing to do with who gets the death penalty. It really has to do with the county where the crime was committed. Um, you could have one person in one county get the death penalty in an identical crime a county over. They might not even get, you know, life without parole. Who knows? And then the socioeconomic status of the defendant and the race of yeah. the victim and defendant. Those are your top leading issues for who gets the death penalty and why. Where's the other 50% come from? Texas is half of it, you said, roughly. And where's the, where's the rest? The other active states are, well, in recent, in the past two years, Tennessee, like, geared up. It was really weird. They were in the category of states that hadn't had an execution in over a decade and really had been a low usage state. They've all of a sudden like started killing people left and right in the past two years. So that's been kind of odd. Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, I'm sure has done it recently, but I think they might be out of their drugs. So I don't think they have been in the past two years. Mm-hmm. Um, Ohio up until the past two years was carrying out executions, but their current Republican governor has put a stop to that. And then there's like a, there's usually a weird outlier Western state, like a South Dakota or something that like we'll have one, but it's, it's, it mostly is concentrated in the deep South. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, wow. You, you, you just like majorly informed me. And of course, uh, many of many in our audience, although may, maybe I'm less informed than some of us, some who are listening, but this just seems like, like I have several responses to all of the stats that you just gave. On the one hand, I'm like, all right, Fewer than 30 executions in a year of, like, I, I can't use the statistic of how many people are in our country because that's they're not guilty. So I don't know how many, you know, potential executions could have happened were the death penalty more utilized. And so I'm like, well, geez, it's only 30 people. I know that sounds really callous, but, you know, just dealing with data, right? Mm-hmm. Why such a concern over, like, let's see, one in nine. So there's possibly three people wrongfully executed out of those, maybe four out of those 30, right? So Mm -hmm. why are we so concerned about something that doesn't really happen that much anyway? Yeah, I think that's a valid question. And it's one that I get actually from the right and left. You know, this used to be a huge issue on the left. It increasingly Mm -hmm. is not as big of one for many on the left. To me, it is a big issue because we're dealing with a human ethics question in our society when we talk about the death penalty. We really are dealing with a cultural issue. You know, I the death penalty is not the only thing in the criminal justice system I want to change. Let's be clear. There is a lot going wrong in our justice system that is of, you know, really high importance to me and to others. But I don't think that we start moving towards a place where we are having the kinds of really big drastic reforms to our justice system that need to occur without getting rid of things like the death penalty. And here's why. I think we have a culture that is not pro-life, first and foremost. We don't value the sanctity of human life in this country. I don't care how many people march for Roe. We don't have a holistic sense of the sanctity of human life and valuing it and really getting back to what I think are our foundational beliefs and what comprise my foundational beliefs and my religious beliefs, which is that every individual has value. You know, that is what we're premised on. Individual liberty matters so much because harming even one individual is a really big deal. And I think that we've really gotten away from that and it impacts all facets of our political system where we don't value individual liberty anymore and where we don't have a pro-life attitude towards people anymore. And so when we're talking about the death penalty, that's what we're actually dealing with. You know, we're dealing with 
the principle of the matter. And I think that we have to start educating our society and moving the climate and the culture towards a society that does have those basic foundational beliefs again, if we want to see not just big justice reform, but big reform in a lot of our sectors, um, our political sectors that really need it. The other thing I thought of as you were kind of talking about the state of things in all the different and various states and how they're like concentrated in certain counties or, you know, jurisdictions is to a great extent, this is a cultural thing because in theory, we could not be executing anybody if the culture were changed, the laws wouldn't even have to be, like, they could permit it, but then, you know, the DAs just don't pursue it because that's just not their MO, right? Or that's just Mm -hmm. not what gets them their name recognition. And, you know, obviously the culture in various states, especially Texas, I mean, Texas has a reputation that whatever culture Texans have, they have their Texan culture, right? (laughs) Um, you You can view that however you want from any direction, but it's, you know, there, there's a sense in which we all know Texans have their own culture. And, and it's easy, it could be easy to place blame on something like that. But, you know, where does the cultural influence really happen? Is it, does it happen at the voter level? Does it happen at the, like, where is your organization and, and some of the work that you've done, where does it go to influence those cultural elements? Yeah, we're really done with a hearts and mind kind of level. Um, because again, you know, I think, we have to get to a place where as a society, we say, not only do we not find it acceptable to risk innocent human life, but that we quit quantifying the value of human life based on innocence, because none of us are innocent, right? We've all committed harm. We've all done wrong. Now there's varying levels of that and people should be held accountable, but we need to try to intervene before violence occurs. We need to try to address root causes of violence early on. You know, most people don't wake up and become violent overnight. They typically are victims first. And so there's not this dichotomy in the justice system of, you know, really good, innocent victims, really bad, horrible offenders. That's not what you're dealing with. You're dealing with a much messier humanity than that. And I think that as someone who is a Christian, again, like I see that as, you know, the fall of human nature. We all would be given a death sentence if not for Jesus's gift and coming to save us. So I want to see that belief system applied in our politics where we don't see people who've done harm as disposable. Instead, we say, what can we do to heal them, to help them find redemption and to help them find pathways forward? What can we do that we're not currently doing for survivors and for victims and their family members to provide them healing and pathways forward? And that's something that really interests me. And I think in order to get society to that place where, you know, people see things through the lens I just gave, that takes a lot harder work than just moving people to, at a voting box. That's kind of the final mm-hmm. step, right? You've got to really yeah, get yeah. in and change the way they see people. So, you know, we're dealing with people. We, we work with large populations of stakeholders, you know, whether that be victims, family members, whether that be former members of corrections or law enforcement or district attorneys. We work with victims themselves. We work with um, people from various religious backgrounds. We work across political affiliations. You know, we really try to go into communities and meet people where they are and talk to them and educate them and ensure that they are hearing first-person experiences and trying to I think, open their eyes to the humanity of what we're dealing with and then to the problems that the government creates. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, that can be done in the media as well. But a lot of it is really going and speaking to 
political groups, to churches, to conferences, you know, just going where we can find people that can maybe maybe have some commonality, some common ground, you know, whether that be limited government supporters, people who believe in individual liberty, or people who have the religious background and beliefs that I do, um, and finding ways we can connect and then expand them on that road into caring about the work that we're doing. So we're recording this in 2020, and we're over halfway through the year when we're, we're going to release this episode. And we've seen a lot of protests. We've seen a lot of backlash against police brutality. There is a resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and popularity of that organization. And there's just a the criminal justice is on people's minds. Have you seen an uptick in receptivity to being against the death penalty? Or is that a little bit further downstream beyond, you know, like what's happening on the streets? I'm seeing an increase in receptivity to things bigger than the death penalty, actually, um, that are exciting to me, you know, especially around the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm really seeing a lot of people of faith and a lot of people on the right and libertarian circles have a new interest and a more open kind of intellectual curiosity around racism in our government and being aware of it, wanting to know more, wanting to know what to do about it. That's a big deal to me. That's an issue that I have found to be difficult to talk about on the right and in Christian circles at times. And it matters a lot to me. And so I'm excited to see that people are becoming more aware of that and wanting to affect change in that area. As far as the death penalty goes, you know, the best way to put it is this job has not been hard. <laughs> I took this job about two and a half years ago, had done some side work around the death penalty, but had mostly just worked on pretty red meat conservative issues up until that point and really expected a lot of backlash, expected to not get a lot of wins. And that has just not been my experience. I really do find that the culture has moved a lot on the death penalty, continues to move. As I mentioned, we've overturned the death penalty in two states in under two years. We had, you know, close to 60 Republican lawmakers that sponsored bills to repeal across 10 other states last year. We've just got a tremendous amount of momentum. And, you know, the really only thing out of step moving in the opposite direction has been the Trump administration at the federal level resuming federal executions, which has been kind of weird, just pretty out of step with where the actual conservatives are in the country, which doesn't surprise me, given that I don't (laughs) think he's actually conservative. So um, no matter what he did, would it it surprise you? It's like, oh, yeah, we don't understand this. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he's like he's like 2020 embodied in a person. Um, oh, so, that's really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Should I tweet that? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, I think that the receptivity to the death penalty has been there and, and building, but I, I certainly think the, this summer has, it's created a new level for people on the right to get a bit more ingrained in what's really happening in our justice system and really start to grasp, you know, the more nefarious aspects. Like, yeah, it's corrupt and it's prone to error as any government entity is, but there actually is a lot of racism in our system as well. There are certainly two systems of justice in this country based on your economic levels and that is heightened by your racial background. I am treated very differently by our justice system than a person of color would be. That bothers me deeply to anybody who cares about individual liberty and, and pro-life stances and limiting government, it has to deeply bother you mm-hmm. that people of color are treated so disparately by our system. So I, I definitely see a, a new era that we're moving into when it comes to that topic. And I think we'll, we'll see, you know, politics flows downstream from culture as the culture becomes more aware and concerned. I think we'll see that start to flow into political results ultimately. How is the, um, how frequently do you have this conversation with conservative Christians and what's been the receptivity there? Because that, that's typically the vote, not the voting block, but the, the, 
the demographic that I converse with that, you know, they pull out Bible verses and they say, oh, well, this and this and this. And, you know, they're, they're in favor of it, mostly out of what they think are theological reasons. Mm-hmm. And some of the things that, you know, you said about, you know, the whole deterrent doesn't work, which I think is what most people usually think of, right? I mean, you tell your kids you're going to ground them for a month, they're going to be more likely to not do what you want them to not do than if you say, oh, well, I'm just going to take away your candy for the afternoon. Like, you know, the harsher the punishment. So like mentally people just think that's, you know, pretty normal. But like, it's tough to overcome a theological argument with sort of practical, yeah, it's not working out. Because they, you know, many people just think that, well, that's just the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I came out of that background, you know, like I mentioned, my dad's a Southern Baptist pastor. That's certainly the mentality I was taught and grew up around. I think, you know, one, we see a lot of denominations moving away from that. Many denominations have come out against it, including most recently, you know, the Catholic church and other variations of Protestant Christianity religions. Southern Baptists are really the, the main holdout on that, that continue to be really aggressively pro-death penalty and even have a stance, I think, in their platform to support it. But even there, we're seeing some softening, you know, and there's some there's some really great thoughtful leaders in that movement. I love Dr. Russell Moore and I love Beth Moore, not related, but uh, both great voices in the Southern Baptist movement who have spoken out about the racism in our system and the number of errors. And I think Russ Moore even said, you know, perhaps calls for a moratorium are appropriate. And I think that that's the line that we can, you know, like I said, find commonality of people If we can get to that point of commonality, I'm fine with that. I don't need you to change your religious beliefs. I certainly did change mine in that regard. I think that the death penalty is an antiquated method of dealing with crime that was given to people who lived in the desert and didn't have any other way to incapacitate people who were violent. Um, And even then, we saw a very different application and rules for the death penalty system that the Jewish people had than what our system looks like. So it's not an apples to apples comparison by any means. Right. Um, But, you know, I don't need you to change your mind on that. If I'm not going to sit here, I'm not your pastor, I'm not going to, you know, try to convince you to change your religion. I am going to say that it's a bit irrelevant, right? Like you can think that the death penalty is appropriate in theory, that it's biblical, but you have to recognize what it's doing in practice. And there's no way that's biblical. There's no way that a system that targets people of color, that targets poor people, that mostly kills people with significant intellectual disabilities and mental health issues and diseases that frequently kills innocent people, that's not biblical. You can't convince me it is. Mm -hmm, And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe in the Bible and a system that God was running, okay, if you think that was, you know, what was biblical, fine. That's not who's running our system. And I don't think we should allow the government to have this power. Yeah. So what things have we not talked about that you would want our audience to hear? Like um, the, 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 the final question on my, on my list here is sort of like, you know, how can people get involved? But beyond that, is there anything else you want to share? Yeah, I mean, you know, the issues we talked about are the main issues with the death penalty, but everybody has their thing that, you know, grabs them more. People always ask me, like, what's the main reason people are turning against it? And there's not one main reason. It just depends on who you're talking to. And so, you know, I've kind of given the big picture issues that I think everybody has, but there's a lot of, you know, smaller reasons, I would say, to oppose it kind of beneath the surface of the iceberg. Um, and those would deal around uh, the number of veterans that we have on death row, people that we ask to go fight for our country, give them terrible health care, and then they come back and a tragedy occurs as a result of trauma they've endured overseas. And our result is to mm. kill them. Um, I think that's yeah. really disgusting for anybody who supports the troops. I also want to point to victims' family members and how this affects them. You know, the the 
idea that all victims' family members want this is absolutely false. In fact, I would say victims' family members are some of the loudest voices in opposition to the death penalty. Um, mm. They are at every state capital in numbers of, you know, in New Hampshire, it was like 36 to 1 of people who wanted to get rid of it versus a victim's family member who wanted to keep it. Colorado was a similar situation. They are harmed by the system. They are opposed to the system as a whole. And it really is something that does significant ongoing damage to them. Um, so I think that's important. And I think oftentimes, you know, you see prosecutors and politicians say this is for the victim's family member, even as the victim's family members are saying, we don't want this. And it's really kind of gross to watch that happen. I've watched it happen over and over. Trump, you know, one of the guys he carried out the execution for this year, the family was a supporter of Trump and was consistently making videos and appealing for him not to do it and didn't listen to him at all. But yet Barr and Trump came out and said, this is for the victim's family members. No, it's not. You don't care one bit about them. This is for political points. Yeah. So I think that's a big problem. Uh, you can get into the impact this has on police and members of corrections. You know, we have a great police study from 2009, I think, called Smart on Crime that actually polled police chiefs on this. And they all felt it was not a deterrent and actually was the least effective tool in their toolbox. And what they really needed was more resources to better protect themselves and better protect the public. Uh, we see that when we task members of law enforcement and corrections, especially corrections, with carrying this out, you know, we're asking them to kill on our behalf. That has a significant impact on them. We offer trauma therapy to juries after these cases because we know what the toll this is. This takes on people to ask them to participate in taking a human life. Um, so there's all kinds of secondary, you know, factors of who this impacts and, and why it's harmful. It kind of is such a big problem. There's a little bit of something for everybody there if one thing doesn't make you angry. Certainly something else will. Um, and lastly, like I mentioned, we still use this predominantly on people. And almost every execution I've seen carried out since I got into this work, there has been either significant factors of innocence or there has been a person who had serious mental health issues, whether that be a mental health disease, whether that be um, an intellectual disability, which even though we, according to our Supreme Court, are not supposed to kill people with an intellectual disability, that's been very poorly enforced in this country, um, or there are people who have significant trauma. And I think that's another lagging factor that's important about this work is educating people about the nature of violence and trauma and what causes it and how to intervene. And, you know, when people talk about the adverse childhood effects of many of these offenders, it's not a bleeding heart left issue. It's a scientific problem they're pointing to of these people were brutalized themselves. That impacts your brain. That changes your functionality. That's something that should be seen as a mitigating factor, but often is not. And until we start to really grasp that as a society, I don't think we'll change our approaches to violence, which need to change with the times and catch up to what we know about the brain, what we know about preventing violence. Well, I would say that everything you've said in this conversation is probably the <laughs> everything the people who are sort of holdouts on, oh, I still think we should have it, should probably really, really wrestle with and hopefully will be convinced to be against the death penalty because, you know, I certainly have been for a number of years, but you know, it's always good for someone like me to like know some of the statistics and, and sort of be reinforced like, yeah, this is really just not a good thing. And so I should, you know, be in support of ending it. Where can our uh, listeners reach you and uh, learn more about this? Because obviously, you know, a 40 minute conversation can only inform so much. So where do we go for more? Yeah, we'd love to connect. Our website is conservativesconcern.org. Uh, we've got all kinds of information there and ways that people can get plugged in or get in contact with us. We're also at our acronym on social media. So conservatives concerned about the death penalty, CCA, TDP on Twitter and on Facebook. We're pretty active on both of those channels. Um, I'm at Hanacock7 on Twitter. I love to connect with people there too. So we've got about 15 state chapters across the country and growing. There's lots of work to be done. 
Awesome. Well, Hannah, thanks for joining us for the episode. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.